welcome to the Wisconsin Horticulture Update for Friday, July 10th. I am Heidi Deering, hosting from St. Croix County, up in wannabe sunny but a little hazy thanks to Canada, Baldwin, Wisconsin. Let's get started with roll call. Anybody from county starting with A through D? Brown County, few. Dane County. Any other A's through D? How about E through K? Kenosha. L through R? Rock County. Outer Gaming? Pierce County. All right. F through Z? Waukesha. Percy from Walworth County. Anybody got this? Aaron from Eau Claire. Let's go ahead and do county reports. Anybody else that calls in can chime in as they come in. Let's go with A through F. Who wants to report Aaron? We're getting some reports of potato beetle starting, definitely in the second to third instar, I'd say. Lots of cucumber, squash-type disease symptoms coming in, and the weather here has been pretty good, finally getting some sun because we had so much rain for a while, and I suspected that a lot of these disease problems would come in because of that during the spring, all that wet kind of cool weather. And then also the coal crop insect problems are starting to all the caterpillars and loopers and whatnot. That's about it. Okay. You're someone from Brown County or Joe and Dane? It's been pretty dry here. The temperature is in the upper 80s and the grasses are starting to turn brown. We've been getting a lot of questions regarding to tomato disorders, mostly related to septoria, early blight, and nutrient deficiency related issues on tomatoes. People are starting to see some powdery mildews. A few days ago, I saw a client walk in with a rust disease in his lawn. And also, issues related to stem girdling roots on trees. People are witnessing that very evidently. That's pretty much about it. We need some more rain here. Okay. Thanks, Vijay. We'd love to send a little your way, but not much, because we want to keep some of it. Joe and Dane, you want to give us your update? It's Lisa. Oh, it's Lisa. Uh, Sorry. That's all right. We have had a few samples come in of tomato diseases, mostly septoria and early blight, no late blight samples yet, thank goodness. I did get a cucumber sample that kind of looked like downy mildew, but I wasn't able to see any of the powdery fuzz on the underside of the leaves, Brian, so I may be sending you that. We've had a lot of problems with gypsy moth this year after having a number of years free of gypsy moth, like back in 2009 was our last big outbreak, but this year I'm getting all kinds of calls. And the ever-popular Japanese beetle has made its arrival, and so we're dealing with that. Great. Don't let it come up this way. I haven't seen any yet, and I don't want to. Barb and Kenosha, you want to give an update? Sure. It seems to have been fruit week, so we've had worms and apples, sweet cherry pollination problems, cherry leaf spot, and then moving on to others, imported cabbage worm in our demonstration gardens here. We've also had several examples of herbicide damage, both on ornamentals and on vegetables, kind of an assortment of different things. And similar to what DJ was saying, we're also still getting tree problems with either deeply planted or girdling root or those types of things that we're seeing decline in those trees. Anybody else in A through L counties? All right, let's move on then to Outagamie. 
I just wanted to let you know we have not had any rain here in this last week. In a way, it's been kind of nice, but we could use a little bit of rain, I think. A lot of people have called in with their tomato concerns. I had a case of magnesium deficiency in a high tunnel garden. Some scale still coming in, and I also had some curculios in cherry trees that had also spread to some other crops that they have in northern Allegheny County. And that's it. Great. Thank you. Diana and Pierce? We did have seven inches of rain last week in one spell, so we've had a lot of flooding, so we have some issues with flooded gardens, and we had gone six days without rain up until then, and that was the longest stretch this season. So we're seeing a lot of fungal things popping up. Apple scab is really bad. Tomatoes are getting problems relatively early in the season here. We also are seeing chlorosis, and I think it's just a lot of wet feet. The plants can't take up the nutrients, and I think the nitrogen's just been totally washed out of the soil by now. We did get that week of sun before that, which means everything really finally started taking off and growing. So finally, things that have been kind of sitting there finally took off, especially the weeds, of course. So we're having a lot of weed ID and weed control questions. The positives is the tart cherry harvest is well underway and the wild black caps and stuff, so people are getting some yummy fruit in and we are crossing our fingers. We've not yet seen Japanese beetle and we've not yet seen spotted wing dysophila, so that's about what's going on here. Great. Thanks, Diana. And then Christy in Rock County? Yeah. This was my week for trees having problems that I couldn't figure out. A lot of honey locusts, actually. I had two or three different people come in with honey locust problems on multiple trees. I've had some willow well. I think it was verticillium. And then just like trees, just not happy trees. And then in terms of other stuff in the gardens, uh, I did notice some Japanese beetles last week, but they're not as many so far. I haven't noticed a lot of damage. And then lots of little caterpillars eating the coal crops both this week and last week, and then the tomatoes were looking so good, and then it got warm, and all the diseases came, so lots of septoria and early blight, and then even some iris problems as well with spotting, so feeling pretty typical now. I wasn't getting a lot of these problems, and now I am, so there we go. Welcome. Yay. We all get to share in the fun. Chrissy and Walworth? Yeah, thank you. Good morning, everyone. So I guess Similar to what other people have said, I think the two things that we see here are millipedes and mosquitoes. Mosquitoes are absolutely horrible. People are calling, saying they can't go outside. I can't go outside. It's really bad in our area. I'm sure it's bad in a lot of places. The millipedes, though, people are starting to call seeing those outside. I've had two people call. I had one sample come in of those jumping worms, and I haven't gotten that confirmed whether or not that's that. Gypsy moths have pupated, and they are right now flying outside of my window, so that's happening down here. And then we're starting to see some maple problems. I'm suspecting that anthracnose is starting to kind of settle in a little bit, noticing that on the maples. And I think that's really about it right now. Okay. Thanks, Chrissy. And then in Waukesha, do we have Kristen or Ann today? Kristen. Kristen, you want to give an update, please? Japanese beetles are out. They're apparently eating my raspberries now that I finally have raspberries on them. So, yay. Lots of stuff going on. We haven't gotten that much rain in the last week and a half, so my lawn is dormant. There's lots of dormant lawns near me. Weeds are still growing really tall in those lawns, but weeds seem to go well no matter what kind of weather we're having. Lots of fruit and vegetable things. I got loopers. I got Japanese beetles, potato beetles. 
apple scab on apple trees, and then plenty of diseases on tomatoes, bacterial speck and spot, early blight, maybe even some anthracnose. It was really rainy and wet and cool, and all that stuff got going really well, and we're starting to dry out a little, but it sounds like we're going to go back to humid and wet really soon. So that's about it. Thanks, Kristen. Did anybody come on late from other counties that hasn't reported yet on your county? This is Patty in Racine County. We've had a lot of miscellaneous questions this week. People concerned about tomatoes still. They're worried about late light coming in. But for the most part, tomatoes, especially at the teaching garden and in the containers especially, are looking pretty good, growing nicely, but they get watered frequently. We have had rain, but probably not enough. The most interesting questions that we've had in the last few weeks actually have been about cottonwoods and what they can do to stop them from making cotton. I spent some time looking into ordinances because the most recent call this week was about the legal aspects of cottonwoods and whether or not it's really legal to even have one. So I thought that was very interesting. And I learned some interesting things about some of our neighboring municipalities. There are no ordinances against cottonwoods in Racine, however. We've had pruning questions, composting questions, and lots of little leaf spot and gall questions on various trees, including walnuts, hazelnuts, and oak trees. That's all for today. Thank you. Thank you, Patty. Anybody else that came on later that has a county report to offer us? All right. I'll go ahead and St. Croix County. I kind of just mirror what Diana indicated from Pierce County. We didn't get quite as much rain up in my area as they did down there. So farm fields are looking phenomenal, corn and other crops. In terms of fruits and vegetables, I'm getting some grape disease questions. People are seeing mildew and other things that they're wondering how to control so they can get some grapes. Of course, the tomato and pepper fertility and disease questions, as everybody's getting. I had someone call in with catalpa tree with wilting, which I'm thinking is verticillium wilt, unfortunately. And just weed ID questions and a few insect questions, mostly just household insects people are finding around the house. And then I'd say the thing that's really annoying me the most up here right now is the wild parsnip is just crazy this year. But I did see a parsnip webworm taking out the flower heads on quite a few of them, which is at least a little bit optimistic for me to see something being a predator on those wild parsnip plants and hopefully keeping all of them from going to seed. And I think that's about it. I'm looking forward to raspberries. I don't have any yet in my garden, but some commercial producers are definitely selling raspberries. So the crop is in full gear now. That wraps up the county reports. Anybody else have anything to add there before I move on to specialist reports? All right, so I think we've got Brian on. Yeah, I'm here, and PJ won't be here today. He's doing a workshop for okay. grandparents' school, I think it's called, but he did leave me some notes for him. I will read those off. My apologies as I slaughter some of the Latin names for the insects he's talking about. I know the plant disease organisms, but not so much the insects. So his comments are, mosquitoes seem to be out in force throughout the state. The most interesting mosquito case came from Terry Lethig's office that'd be up in Wood County. It was a specimen of our largest mosquito species, Seraphora ciliata, known as the galley nipper. They're not common in Wisconsin, but do show up every once in a while. They're about three times the size of other mosquitoes. Japanese beetles are picking up, and unfortunately, PJ doesn't think that we'll be seeing the low levels that we had last year. He hasn't had any reports of significant damage yet, but the season is young, and he's been seeing decent number of beetles around on lindens and grapes. He's had many reports of scale insects as well, and we're right in the middle of the period when crawlers of the brownish lacanium scales are active. 
He said he's also had several calls and emails regarding Magnolia Scale, although the crawler stage on that one won't be out until late August or early September. If you've seen any gypsy moth caterpillars this spring or early summer, they should be done, causing damage by now. He's been tracking some in a container in the lab and had his first adults merge at the beginning of the week. Indoors, he's been getting a lot of calls and emails about ants and larder beetles. With the larder beetles, he often focuses on the part of the house where they're seeing activity. If larder beetles are being found outside the kitchen, the food source for them could be dead cluster flies, black felder bugs, Asian leedy beetles in windowsills, light fixtures, and soffit areas. And then in the garden, cucumber beetles and squash beetles have been active. He's also had a few reports of zebra caterpillars, which have shown up on cabbage and other related plants. And that's it for him. And if you have any questions, give them a shout by email or give them a phone call. And then in terms of what I've been seeing in the clinic, all I can say is, wow, are the bacterial diseases active? Both last week and this week, I had a ton of bacterial diseases come in, particularly on vegetable crops. Lisa, you mentioned possibly seeing what you thought might be downy mildew on cucumber. It could very well be get a sample in for us to take a look at, but I'm more inclined to think it may be some angular leaf spot. We've been seeing a ton of that on cucurbits. That eventually will form relatively whitish, very angular-looking spots on the leaves, and we've been culturing out of that, getting a lot of the causal bacterium out of there. It's very cool in culture because it forms diffusible fluorescent pigment, so you can grow it out on a particular growth medium, shine a UV light on it, and the colonies glow, kind of this lovely blue-green color. We've also seen a similar disease on green beans caused by a similar bacterium. Bacterial brown spot is the name of that disease. We've also seen bacterial diseases on tomatoes as well, and both one that's caused by one of these fluorescent bacteria and then another disease that's caused by a bacterium that produces really beautiful mucoid yellow colonies when you grow it on a different kind of media. So those are the bacterial spec and bacterial spot organisms. So those are active. We've also seen bacterial canker on tomato. That one invades through the vascular tissue, causes a wilting. And then as the disease progresses, oftentimes you will see a distinct canker that will form at the bottom of the stem near the soil line. But again, that one typically starts initially as a vascular pathogen. We have seen also black rot on crucifers, particularly cabbage and kale. That's a xanthomonas disease, again, another bacterium. And again, a bacterial leaf spot on peppers. So bacteria up the wazoo. We've also seen some viral problems. We had a garlic sample that tested positive for a potivirus this week, and we've had some ornamentals. It was actually a hot site that probably had tobacco rattlevirus. We don't do a formal test for that here, but it tested negative for everything else I would expect on hosta, and the symptoms, which were kind of ring spot patterns, were very, very typical of that particular virus. We had a lovely sample of hollyhock rust come in that forms the really hard kind of bumps on the bottom surface of the leaf. And those are just clusters of the resting pores of that particular pathogen, the fungal pathogen. We actually had a really interesting example of tar spot on not maples. I've been seeing a lot of that on the trees around Madison on the Norway maples, but this happened to come in on an ilex species, winterberry. And there is a variation of the disease that will occur on that particular host. We're seeing a lot of canker diseases. Christy, did you mention you were having problems with a willow with dieback? Who was it that mentioned concerns about verticillium wilt? Oh, me up in St. Croix County. Oh, okay. The Talbot County, too, on the willow. Okay. On willow. I would not expect that to be vert. That's not technically a host of verticillium. I would look more for canker diseases on willows. 
Okay. They tend to be really, really prone to canker organisms, so you can get a lot of dieback. Does it look like that verticillium pattern where, like, branches die off one by one? Yep, yep, but it's caused by localized infection in the individual branches. So if you're seeing large areas of the tree that are dying back, I would check back on the larger branches for any evidence of sunken areas, or if you've got a good hand lens, look for little fruiting bodies that may be forming on the branches, because when I get willows in, that's usually the first thing I look for, because they get three or four different types of canker diseases that I see pretty commonly. And actually, interestingly, I was just looking at some photos that were sent in by Bill Halfman of a weeping willow, and he sent me a photo of the entire tree, and there were actually fungal conch forming on the main trunk. So that one had a fungal infection in the main trunk. Okay. So uh, watch for that as well. Would the dieback happen really quickly? Because she didn't notice it, and then it seemed like in a week. Yeah, yeah, that would not be unheard of, particularly on smaller branches, on willows for the cankers to develop very quickly, particularly during wet weather. Okay, thanks. Yep, and then we're seeing a lot of leaf diseases. Anthracnose is being pretty active on a variety of hosts, some tobacco leaf spot on oaks, and my list for the week is just amazingly long, and there'll be two weeks' worth of materials in this write-up this week. Also, downy mildews. I saw downy mildew on grapes that came in, and interestingly, Scott Royce from Marinette County sent me some photos, and I had to have him send me a sample of this. It was actually a weed. It was Shepherd's Purse that had, as it turned out when it came in, both downy mildew and then a disease called white rust, which forms a rust-like pustule on the surface of the plant, and it goes to a variety of different types of brassicas. So you can see this on vegetable crops as well. But it bursts open and it's filled with really white spores. It's actually not a true rust. It's actually closely related to the downy mildews and also to organisms like Pythium and Phytophthora. So it's a water mold, an oomycete. So just tons of stuff that we're seeing this week. It's been pretty amazing the last couple of weeks what we've seen come in. And just to let you know, we have had two positive oak wilts and a positive Dutch elm disease as well. And a vert wilt on ash. So all three of the major vascular wilts. Any questions from anyone? Hey, Brian, this is Kevin. Yeah, hi, Kevin. Anything on late? Did you talk about that already? I know Ken Schroeder sent that email out. Talked about late blight? Yeah, on tomatoes, the impact that it might have on our commercial potato growers. There have been reports of late blight in the state. I know of at least one. I talked to Amanda Gevins last week about that. It was kind of in the center portion of the state. It wasn't an unusual variant of the pathogen, so it's one that we've seen before. Certainly, the wet weather that we've had during the season has been very conducive for development of that particular pathogen. If we've got it in the state, there is some likelihood that it could spread. So you should be monitoring for that. If you see anything that is even remotely suspicious, send in a sample. We do those diagnoses for free. And we want to see samples because Amanda wants to keep track of what variants of the pathogen we're seeing in the state, what genotype. So you can send the initial samples either to her or oftentimes you can just send them to me. We'll pre-screen them and then verify whether or not you do have late light. If it is late light, we take it up to Amanda and then she does the typing on it. If it's not late blight, we'll identify what you're seeing, and we'll send a formal report back to you, again, free of charge. And we've been testing a fair amount of tomatoes at this point for late blight, but none of it's been late blight at this point. A lot of viral issues we've found on tomatoes, the kind of a combination in several plants of what appears to be cucumber mosaic virus and tobacco mosaic virus. And then we've seen some bacterial canker. We've seen early blight. We've seen septoria leaf spot, but no late blight as of yet. 
All right, thanks. As that email just came out, and I know it's pretty sensitive about gardeners being on the lookout too, because sure. late blight is a pretty devastating disease. Yeah, and that's part of the reason why we offer the free testing is we want to encourage people to get that one diagnosed so that we can take appropriate measures to eliminate plants if they are truly infected with a late blight organism. Brian, on the viruses and tomatoes, are certain varieties more susceptible than others? We just get whatever we get in, and we don't necessarily ever know what variety it is. We've had three examples of plants that have come in with kind of stunted growth, kind of weird, a little bit distorted. It hasn't been really curly or cup leaves, but they're just a little twisty and a little stunted and a little off color, so kind of purple in color. And we have a range of six viruses that we test for. And for these three samples, it's come back with somewhat weak positives for cucumber mosaic and tobacco mosaic viruses. And whether or not it's actually those viruses or something else that's cross-reacting with these dipstick tests, we don't know. There seems to be at least some evidence that there are viruses out there. Yeah, I've got a producer up here in a high tunnel that has four different varieties of tomatoes in that high tunnel, and the one variety, it's not growing, it's just stunted, mm -hmm. and I'm suspicious that it could be virus. So yeah. I'm going to try to coax him to have it tested. Send it in and tell me you want to check for late blight. That's a free diagnosis, and we test oh. for the viruses anyway. Okay. As I right. told everyone, if you invoke the words late blight with either a tomato or a potato sample, that gets you a free diagnosis no matter what we do on it. If you try to send me an oak sample and ask for a late blight test to get a free <laughs> test, it's not going to work. We can try. You can try, but I will call you. Anybody else have questions for Brian? Brian, we've got some basil in demonstration garden here in Kenosha, and I swear it's got downy mildew on it. It's got the kind of pale leaves, a little bit of purpling, then they get the dark blotches on them. Mm -hmm. But on the underside, I'm not finding any fuzzy spore structures at all. Yeah. Send a sample in. We'll do that one for free as well. We're kind of monitoring for that one. Okay. And then, again, if you see any, what you think is downy on cucurbits, we're pretty much doing those for free as well. And if you see downy on impatience, we're kind of keeping track of that one, and we'll do those for free as well. Particularly, um, we're interested in downy on cucurbits. That one has potentially huge impact on production here in the state. But personally, I want to know where the basil downy mildew is, if we're seeing that, and also the impatience downy mildew. So I'm willing to do those for free just to keep track of that. If it's not downy mildew, what are the other possibilities? We had some earlier where I would have sworn based on symptomology it was downy mildew, and we couldn't find any sporulation either. And then when we talked to the producer, we had a sense that it might have been some phytotox from something they had sprayed. So it had kind of made the foliage turn a little bit on the purple side, and you could actually see where leaves had overlapped where some of the tissue had not been treated. The other thing is that when that comes in, we'll look to see whether we can find anything else. Okay, thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Hey, Brian, can you just make a quick comment on what our control options are, standard fungicide kind of a prophylactic approach for in-season just to keep the new growth from getting infected? What about the bacterial? That's not something we talk about as often, but is there a common recommendation for some of that too? Usually for bacterial diseases, if you can catch them early enough, again, it's better if you can apply these before you see symptoms. But copper-containing products that are labeled for whatever host you're treating would be what I would recommend. Part of the problem, though, is some of these pathogens, particularly some of the tomato bacterial diseases, they're oftentimes seedborne. And so if you're having problems with that, one, you have to do good rotation to allow time for contaminated leaf debris 
to decay in the soil, that oftentimes will pretty much eliminate those organisms. But you've got to allow sufficient time in a rotation for that. And then if you're concerned about seed coming in, then you can do a hot water seed treatment. And I can provide you with some details on how to do that if you want to email me. Or I can include a link on the Wisconsin Hort Update entry for today's session on that. But once we're in the season now, other than the copper compound? Yeah, that's kind of it, quite frankly. And at what point do you just say rogue the plants out? And is that a good recommendation? we got all these other cultural things we can try, but a lot of times people don't like to hear that. Yeah, the problem with the bacterial diseases is that they can get on the fruit, and so then you have technically adulterated fruit, which we can't recommend that folks eat. If they're not seeing any symptoms on the fruits, there may be some benefit to applying the copper materials, but again, you've got to be careful to watch the label and that you've got enough time between when you apply and when you harvest to not violate the treatment to harvest interval. But usually for bacterial diseases, the primary thing that we recommend for most, certainly homeowners, is copper. Anybody else with questions for Brian? Should we move on? So much fun in disease land, huh? It's been wow. pretty exciting for me. Jeez, job security, too. Yes, indeed. We were running about 30% ahead of last year as of July 1. Wow. All right. Hey, Brian. Yeah. I was teaching a class this week at the teaching garden on using organic methods and materials, and a couple of people brought up. And I've read about this, but I would just like to hear your official statement on it, that their parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, whoever, have used milk forever to spray on their cucurbits and other plants to prevent fungal diseases such as powdery mildew. And they just use a spray bottle and they just spray it on the leaves and they do it frequently throughout the season. And I know there's been some research on this, but I would like your official opinion, please. Yeah, I think that there has been some evidence that that can help prevent some powdery mildew. I don't know how effective it's going to be in most situations. I think there are probably other better products that you might be using, and I think there are other cultural things that you can do to prevent the powdery mildews, including thinning of vines, and also for smaller cucurbits, trellising, and spreading the vines out just to get better airflow. With environmental conditions like we've had this year, even if you're applying something like the milk or even another type of fungicide, I doubt whether you're going to get a lot of good control. It's just been very, very favorable for fungal diseases in general. But again, I think if you look in the research, you will find studies where they've used milk products, they do get some control, but again, I don't think you're going to get a huge amount of control with those products. But on the other hand, if they feel comfortable spraying them and they feel like they're getting control, I don't see any harm in doing it as long as you aren't supplying some sort of food source for another more aggressive pathogen. Well, always a possibility. Great. Thank you. Yeah. Very good. Any other specialists on that want to report before I introduce our guest speaker today? All right. So without further ado... Today we have Amaya Asucha, who is an assistant professor in horticulture at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and fruit crop specialist for UW Extension. And she's going to share with us today some information she's got about cold-hardy grapes and in particular canopy management. So go ahead, Amaya. Welcome. Thank you, Heidi. Thank you for having me today. Since I'm new to the state, I was just fascinating hearing everybody where they were reporting from. So I have this little map and I'm looking at all the counties. It's a lot of fun. I feel very lost in the state. So people just call me and I'm always referring to my little map to see where people are calling me from. 
but it's fun to hear about all these things going on and the different problems. It seems like a lot of diseases, so just to change a little bit the topic, I'm going to talk about boring canopy management on grapes. I get a lot of calls from homeowners, but particularly from commercial vineyards, on how to deal with these crazy cold hardy grapes that we have growing here in the States and that they are just growing and growing and growing and how can we control them and how can we keep them in place. And so I thought that a good topic was to talk a little bit about what are the things that we can do to control the growth and basically do this canopy management. So I put together a couple of slides, and I just want to start with defining what canopy management means. And it's just basically all these uh, viticulture practices that we have and that we use just to apply to growing shoots that have fruit to try to promote a vine balance, try to promote a balance between how much vegetative mass we produce versus the quality of the fruit that we're producing. So the overall goal of the canopy management and all these techniques that we use is basically to promote, not to have a healthy vineyard and that's going to be sustainable over time and that we're going to have good quality fruit. So for that, we have a number of techniques, but the number one thing that we want to do and that we want to achieve with this is just to reduce the incidence of diseases, as we were talking. I heard a lot of powdery mildew and some downy mildew, somebody might have mentioned there, very common in the vineyards. And if we actually are able to manage our canopy properly and open our canopies, the incidence of these diseases should go down. And so that's what are we looking for with this canopy management, but also to improve fruit quality. We know that exposing grapes to clusters early on to the sun, to light, is going to help produce a thicker skin that is going to be more resistant to some of the diseases, but also is going to make this fruit stronger sink for all the carbohydrates and the sugars that are being produced in the leaves. So if we are able to expose the fruit very early on in the season, that fruit has much, much, much higher chances of having less diseases and also to have more sugar and a better quality of fruit. So those, I would say, the main benefits of the cannabis management. There are other things, like in some cases, depending on what you're doing, you could even increase the yield, and it has some benefits if you are having some sort of mechanized harvesting in your vineyard. So the two main things that we are doing during this time of the year regarding open canopies and exposing clusters to the sun is either the shoot thinning or the leaf pulling. And the shoot thinning, we really would want to do it earlier because the earlier you get to those shoots, the earlier you are able to eliminate excessive shoots. It's easier because you don't have these really long shoots with all these tendrils that are all wrapped up. So we encourage that this technique is done early on when the shoots are around maybe 18 inches, more or less. And what we do is we want to have, depending on what's the trellis that you have or the structure that you have, you want to have between four or six of these shoots per foot of your trellis or your cordon that you have. And so as I said, this is the earlier you do it, the better just face them because you know how they're going to grow. They're going to grow crazy. So if you're able to face them in advance, you are already saving you so much trouble in terms of trying to open the canopy just by doing this. And it's really super fast. It should only take one or two minutes per vine. The other reason why it's important to do this shoot thinning is because sometimes we can overcrop the vines 
and what that's going to happen is that the fruit is never going to ripen, it's never going to accumulate enough sugar, so at the end of the season the fruit is still not going to be ready because we just have too much. Vines tend to crop much more than what they can handle. So by reducing these shoots, by taking shoots early on, you're automatically thinning for fruit. You're taking potential clusters off. So that's another reason why it's important to do this kind of management. I put some pictures there of how the vines should look. You can see how some of the pictures show that the clusters are really well exposed and you see a lot of light hitting that skin so that that skin can get thicker and more resistant to diseases, but also for airflow. The more airflow you have, especially when we have rains almost every day, the foliage is always wet. If you can have an open canopy, if you can have less shoots that you removed early on, that is going to help so that everything dries up faster, which is a big benefit in terms of a disease incidence. Another technique that we use is the leaf pulling. It's during this time of the year we're doing most of it. And it's basically what it does, it allows for this microclimate around the clusters. So what we do is we remove two or three leaves from the base of the shoots around the clusters to stimulate even more the concentration of light and also the air flow. It also helps balance a little bit the leaf area to the crop ratio. We know that to be able to take all the way to harvest and to ripe grapes, we need around 15 to 18 leaves per shoot. So if you have one shoot that usually has two clusters of grapes, you need in that shoot to have between 15 to 18 leaves so that you can take it all the way to the end of the season and to be fully ripe. And so when we do this leaf pulling, there are a couple of things that we need to consider. One is that we don't want to do it very early on. Because if you do it before fruit set, so let's say you decide to do it during full bloom, what is going to happen is that you're not going to have enough leaves in your shoots. Your shoots are not going to be long enough. And those base leaves are the oldest leaves, the bigger leaves, the ones that are producing the more carbohydrates that are actually going into the fruits that have just been set. So if you remove those leaves very early on, you could have some problems of not having good fruit sets. So you can have a cluster that is missing a lot of berries. So we want to do this past fruit set, so maybe a week or two weeks after fruit set, you can already start removing some of these leaves. And I always recommend to do this type of labor early on. The earlier you're doing, the least time it's going to take you and the more effective it's going to be. So as I said, you want to have between 15 to 18 leaves per shoot to be able to ripe the cluster. So this time of the year, we're actually doing a lot of these removal. And um, you want to see the light hitting the clusters from both sides. So if you have your vines, depending on how you have it oriented, usually north-south, if the sun is hitting on the south side, you want to be able to see some of those rays of light on the other side if you're looking through the north side. So what they call this sample light, that you can see this pattern in the soil. And so there's one picture that I have, like, two circles. I don't know if everybody has the PDF that I sent, but shows there how different does it look when you remove leaves to when you still have them. So you can see the picture. If you're looking at your screen on the right side, you see a circle that you can see all the clusters really well exposed. And then the circle with the dashed line on the left side can see all of those leaves covering all of those clusters. 
So what you want to see the image more to the right side, and it's this time of the year when you should probably start doing that, if not earlier. We actually did it three weeks ago. We started doing it in our research class. And the last thing that I put there is a little schedule of how we can deal with these vines. So how can we keep them in place? How can we manage them so that they don't grow excessively? So the first thing, actually, it all starts with the pruning. So by pruning, you are removing a lot of this material that have all these potential centers of growth. They're going to generate and produce millions of shoots. We know how vines are. They're like we They just grow and grow and grow, and they put shoots during the entire season. So if you start early on with a good pruning, removing all the extra material and just leaving, if you're doing spurs, if you're doing canes, appropriate amount of material for the age of your vines. That's another thing. When people plant vines, they tend to overcrop them very early on and they leave more than what the vines can handle so they actually never get really good fruit. You need to get to that point of balance in which if your vine is younger than four years old, you don't want to fully crop it because you're going to stress that vine, that vine you can have some dieback, and also what's going to happen is that you're never going to be able to have good quality of fruit. So during the first four years, you don't want to overcrop them. From then on, you need to play a little bit with the balance of how much you leave so that you can control the vigor of the vines. After four years, you can crop them a little bit more, leave more fruit. You can leave the two clusters per shoot because if you don't leave enough fruit, what's going to happen is the opposite. You're going to have all this vegetative growth and all this shade and all this very dense canopy. So pruning is the most time-efficient thing that you can do to reduce the amount of growth of these vines. Then, as I said, the shoot thinning, usually between the bud swell and bloom is where we do all these shoot thinnings. You want to leave between, as I said, four to six shoots per foot of cordon, or if you have a cane, the same. If you don't have established cordon and if you just have canes, you want to remove if you have more shoots than that. Then the leaf pulling set after bloom when you already have a fruit set. The earlier you do it, the more benefits you're going to get. The other thing that you can do as well is remove some clusters if you have too much fruit. And again, the earlier you do it, the better. I have some growers that tell me that they decide to take out some clusters when they're starting Verizon and some of the clusters are not gaining any color. They're staying green and they decided to take them out during that time. So, you know, late July, early August. That is too late that you wasted all that energy on those clusters you put all that energy between May to August to just remove them at the very end. That is a waste for the plants. So if you're doing cluster removal because you have too much fruit on your vines, do it early on, either before bloom or right after fruit has been set. And the other things that really help, depending on the training system that you have, if you have a homeowner that doesn't have any training system and they usually have the vines just growing up, trellis that they have in the house, it's just to calm down all those shoots, if they are on a high cordon, just calm them down so you can actually expose the fruit to more light. And with that, I will be happy to answer questions of any of extension agents that have either commercial growers or homeowners that have grapes, and what are the biggest problems that you guys are dealing with regarding the grapes? This is Heidi from St. Croix County. And the question I have is I get a fair number of people coming in and they just don't know how to handle their grapes. If there was okay. an information sheet that I could offer them that has some of this information on it, it's not a whole booklet because the booklet is too much information. 
just to give them some ideas of things they can do like this to help improve the airflow and reduce the disease incidence. Is there anything okay. out there? So what there is, and they was put together, I don't know how long ago, there's this growing grapes in Wisconsin. I don't yeah. know if you have that one. Yep. So it's not that extensive. It doesn't have a lot of information, but it has some information regarding how to train the vines, different training systems, and also how to prune them. Okay. I don't have any materials for, like, homeowners. All of our materials are more in-depth, but I could find some on the web. I'm sure that we can find from other places that they have these homeowner sheets, or we can work on one together if you want to, Heidi. We could, or another possibility is just the visuals people really see in pictures better than they do uh -huh. in words. So if we could either do just a visual handout or a YouTube video or some kind of a short Vimeo video that would show people kind of those things that you showed us here in this presentation, it would be helpful. Okay, yeah, it sounds like a really good idea. Okay. I just comment, there are some YouTube videos that are out there, and we're finding more of these popping up online all the time. And I think it's University of Maine that might have a few. And there's certainly reason for us to have one, I guess, from our perspective. But I think if you search on the Internet, you'll find some of those videos that show that. But I would agree with Heidi that this is a concept like all pruning. And with grapes in particular, they are so complex in their growth and structure. And it's really a challenge to get people to understand just how vigorous we need to prune yeah. those things back. Right. And that's a really hard concept. Anybody who's taught pruning and talked about pruning and removing live tissue, people get really sensitive about mm -hmm. that. And grapes in particular, they just think you're devastating the plant when you're removing 80% of last year's wood. It's just something that most people don't necessarily appreciate, that the plant is more than able to sustain itself even with that severe pruning. So it's a challenge, and I think that's all part of that hands-on learning that we can provide, I'm assuming we have a venue or a victim plant that we can demonstrate that on, and not everybody is able to have those kind of experiences for their clients, but that's always the best way. Any other last questions for Amaya before we move on to announcements? Amaya, this is Patty down in Racine County. We struggle with some of the grape questions also, and we do have some wine grapes. Frontenac, I believe, is what we have mm -hmm. at the teaching garden, and it's really hard for me to get the Master Gardener volunteers who actually know a lot of this, but it's so hard for them to make those pruning cuts. They just don't want to do it, and they watch me do it, and they go, oh, my gosh, you're killing the vines. So I think the visual is really important, and if a fact sheet could be put together where you show a vine before pruning and after pruning and the canopy thinning with the fruit showing, just some of those pictures like that would be so helpful for our homeowner population and those that are growing grapes, you know, in a small kind of quantity. So the other thing that I wanted to ask you about is the possibility of putting out a new publication on grape cultivars suitable for homeowners. Because a few years ago, they did a comparison of seedless winter-hardy grape varieties at West Madison. And so these were seedless ones that did very well. Some of them didn't do well. Some of them did do really well. And I'm not sure any of that information ever got published. Those are also the questions I get from homeowners. Is if I'm only going to have one grapevine in my yard, that's all I have room for. I'd really like it to be a sweet, juicy, seedless table grape that I can mm -hmm. grow. I don't know if they put together the publication. There's that variety evaluation for table grapes going on in West Madison. They 
PI of that project is Sarah Patterson from the Department here of Horticulture. She has a grad student working on that. And as part of their project and their grant, they have to produce some publications. And I think they're working on that. I can tell you from what I know which ones do well or not. That's not my project. But I know that they will produce some publications. So I can tell you some of the ones that I recommend. Okay. So the Somerset Seedless does really well. It's sort of like a rosé. Mars is also good. It's blue. Reliance also has done very well, and it's also doing well at the Peninsula Station. Reliance is between pink and rosé, sort of all gray. Ainset is also doing well, and it's a green one. How do you Montreal, spell that? It's E-I-N-S-E-T. Okay, okay. great. Thank you. Montreal Blue, it also does well here, and it's all of these varieties are doing well in West Madison and at Peninsula. And then okay. the other one that is also blue is Trollhagen, so T-R-O-L-L-H-A-U-G-E-N. I think it's spell, I think. We need yeah. to wrap up here quick. Okay. okay, so those are some of the varieties. If you guys have any other questions, I'm happy to answer. Just give me a call, send me an email. I can help out with that. I just wanted to quickly add, I do have the data from West Madison from 2011, and I am going to send it to the Ag Court list. This is Lisa. Fantastic. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Amaya. I appreciate this. was a very good discussion. I learned a lot. Does anybody have any wrap-up announcements before we close the call? Any upcoming programs or events we should know about? We're having a vineyard walk at West Madison on the 29th of July. It's going to start at 4 o'clock. So if you have any grape growers, if you want to just let them know that there's going to be a vineyard walk on July 29th at West Madison at 4 p.m. Okay. Thank mm-hmm. you, Amaya. Anybody else? All right. Well, the next Gotham Horde update will be on Friday, July 17th. It'll be hosted by Joe Millenberg in Dane County, and our guest speaker will be Christelle Godot, speaking on her favorite topic, I'm sure, Spotted Wing Drosophila. So we'll let you go for this week. Thank you. And have a fantastic week.